Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Hello, I'm Scott Soshner. And I'm Evan Novi williams and this is the most expensive ticket in L.A. sports business podcast, The Sportacast. All right, let's see. Are we talking uh, L.A. Kings? No. Lakers, Sparks. Lakers, Sparks, Dodgers. What are we talking about? I hear oh, there's a big event in oh, LA. Oh, I got it. You know, I always loved, by the way, when they were like, no Super Bowl team has ever, you know, hosted the. And now we got two in a row. You know, does Tampa count because there like, wasn't really a full house of fans? I mean, it counts. Oh, I think it, it wasn't. Counts. It wasn't full fledged packed stadium. Uh, you know, all your fans there. That wasn't quite yeah, bad. I've been wondering this week if there if that is just pure coincidence that you went fifty years without a host and then and then bam, two in a row, or if there is some kind of actual explanation in the data about whether the NFL likes to or prefers to pick teams that are, you know, that are in the in the upper class of what is spent and how they're run to host these things. I think there's there's a few Well, you know how it is. If you have a new stadium, you get a new stadium, you get a Super Bowl years in advance. So there's no way to I mean the Rams mortgaged everything from what I understand, but you know I'm not Mr. Salary Cap following yeah. how they the player personnel stuff. But from what I read, it was like the Rams mortgaged the future for the now. Right. There were two approaches here on these teams. And and I know you want to get into a little bit sort of the financial mismatch of these two teams. But the way they were built was the Rams mortgaged the future, give away the picks, whatever for the players now, whereas the Bengals sort of stunk for a while and, and built up. So there's no way the NFL could have known that the Rams would have been a good team. No, I'm, I'm not saying they that they would know. Yeah, but yes, and 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 Tampa Bay does not have a new stadium, right? So last year was not a was not a function of oh, Tampa has a brand new stadium. We they need to host the Olympics or host the. No, the yeah, Super but it's Bowl. just Tampa always wants in the rotation for Super Bowls. Sure, yeah, and, and whether it's I, warm weather teams just potentially do better now. I, I don't know. I can think of some some potential explanations, but it is definitely interesting that we that we went so long without it, and now. Bam, two in a row. Maybe Las Vegas next year is uh, is already licking their chops. But it does seem as though, it, at, at least in a very small sample size, that there may be some kind of correlation here. All right. The fact remains, though, if you want to go, and I know our Barry Bloom wrote a story about the ticket price is the highest in, in Super Bowl history. And he closed with a line that's like, bring a full wallet, you know, which is perfect for Barry, who's you know a veteran, a grizzled veteran in the industry, did not realize that everything is cashless. I, <laughs> yeah. I was just out, as you know, let, let's go into the youth hockey here. Eben. I was just out in Detroit and we had a, a tournament at Little Caesars Arena and we played in the practice facility. Even the little snack bar in the practice area, cashless. Like they, That's the whole, no matter what you want, where you go, they don't want to take your money. And 
But this is the here's the rub. And I don't mean to pick on any one particular venue. It just happened to be I was there. I went to buy every time I go to, to, to an event, I buy, you know, whoever has a 50-50 raffle, I'm in, right? I always buy the 50-50. And of course, there it was again cashless. So she's walking around with the little machine. How many would you want? So it was like 20 bucks. I put my card in and it's just spinning and spinning and spinning and spinning. By the way, it was a great sports business case study. So I'm waiting, I'm waiting, I'm waiting. It's in between periods. I want to get back. Uh, A friend of mine had said, hey, uh, can you get me two jerseys? I'm like, you know what? I got to get to the pro shop. So I said, I'll do it on the way back. Great. So I take it. I take the card. I go to the pro shop. I walk in. I'm like, hey, I don't even need to look. I'm just like, can I please get a white and red adult large jersey Dylan Larkin, right? And the response from from the person in the uh, in the pro shop was, I don't have any white jerseys. I'm like, wait, what? Supply chain. Yeah, interesting. Zero. I don't. I guess white's more popular than the red. I don't know. Zero white jerseys. Order back order for months. They just can't get it. So I walk back the other way. I try to get my 50-50. Spinning, spinning, spinning. Not I don't day. mind. But what have we said? What have and, and executives and later in the week, by the way, we're gonna have the CEO of the Rams, Kevin Demoff, on on the show. And you know, you build a new facility. What does everybody talk about? We've talked to Steve Ballmer about this, other owners, right? It's all about tech, right? That you gotta have great broadband, you gotta have great Wi-Fi. And here was an example. I mean, I'm in the building. I'm in the concourse of Little Caesars Arena. I'm trying to spend my money on the 50-50 raffle, and it's spinning, spinning, spinning. I ultimately gave up because I wanted to get back and watch some of the game. Yeah, it's interesting. And 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 not to mention, there, there's another kind of aspect of of ticket li- or sorry, of, of cashless stadiums in that there's a huge portion of the population that is unbanked and it is really difficult if yep. you don't have a credit card to get money onto a gift card to spend it in in, in stadiums and arenas. Uh, when, when you do that, you you a lot of people don't end up spending all of the cash on the gift card. They don't take the cash off the gift card. That ends up being essentially discovered money down the line for the for for, for teams or venues. Uh, there's a lot about about cashless venues. I, I do think it is the future, and we're already seeing that in a lot of ways. But there's a lot of problematic parts about this, Scott. And and we've mentioned kind of two of the big ones. One being that the tech has to work, and when it doesn't, things go go very poorly. And two being that. Cashless venues do, in some ways, kind of hinder the enjoyment or even the possibility of attending for 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 large portions of the population, depending on where in the country you are. Right. So I guess if you're in that category, you're not really worried about the Super Bowl ticket pricing. But on the NFL's ticket exchange, the official stuff, top VIP suite tickets priced at hundred thousand dollars. And once we figured out it was the Bengals and the Rams, top individual tickets they kind of settled in at about eighteen thousand bucks. And Barry used the word cheapest. I like least expensive. Dipped to about five thousand. That's that's some pretty good scratch to get in and see that game. Yeah, it's pretty wild. The the Super Bowl ticket market for folks who are who are not really familiar with the way where there was a long time where it felt like a really interesting market of of supply and demand where depending on who the teams were you see higher prices or lower prices and distance from where the the actual Super Bowl was etc the NFL through on location experiences which is a, a hospitality company that they founded a long time ago now majority owned by by Endeavor they've essentially cornered the market now on Super Bowl ticket prices to the point that 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 I, I'm not even sure if Scott you can look at that that six thousand six about seven thousand I think on Monday morning take a look at that average ticket pricing or, or get in price and and get a sense of of really what the demand is 
on location controls so much of the inventory. They really want to package that inventory in high priced uh, experiences. Experiential. I was waiting for you to get there. Yeah. You get the ticket, you get the hotel room, you get the dinner with a Bengals great or a dinner with a Rams great. If the Rams win, you get to go to the the Rams party on on Sunday night. They want to package these tickets into these bigger things, which obviously is a lot more expensive uh, than just the ticket itself. So when when you see individual tickets sold on resale marketplaces, oftentimes those are the allotments that go to players themselves, which if they don't want to give them to their family, they can maybe figure out a way to sell them to a broker who, who can then send them. But there's really just a lot fewer individual tickets available. And because on location, and, and we don't really have an insight, there's not much transparency into what they're holding. They can release tickets, they can sell them on a very slow basis. It looks like there's not a lot of inventory there. But in truth, on location could just be sitting on a big chunk that they want to get rid of later. The NFL and on location essentially now control the marketplace and they can make that marketplace look extremely expensive or extremely cheap depending on how they unroll it. And right now it certainly seems as though they, they want this market to look extremely expensive. And no surprise, like the NFL had an option to buy back some shares of on location. Looks like they're going to exercise that option and, and get a bigger chunk of it. And we hadn't discussed this at all, but uh, I, one of my favorite things to do at Super Bowl, and I don't even know how many I have covered at this point, but you know, uh, Radio Row is not my favorite place to be. You and it, me both. It, it, imagine just opinion in differing voices coming at you in a cacophony from uh, bouncing off, you know, the big what are the walls? It's just opinion everywhere you go. It's just people in opinion. But one of my favorite things is watching sort of all the former players that walk through who are pitching different products, and I mean, it can be from like spirits to gout medicine to you you name it it, it runs runs the gamut so if i'm thinking bengals and rams like rams i'm thinking like eric dickerson's going to be all over the place and sure. like he could be the, the bengals who who do you got like i i defaulted i'll tell you mine because you're not going to go the same way but i defaulted to be like like what's Icky Woods doing these hey, days, right? So I was going to say Icky Woods. Yeah, were you, I saw were him. you really? Yeah, there was a video of him on the sideline at the AFC Championship game. I guess after the Bengals won and Joe Burrow, they like kind of hugged each other, and then Joe Burrow did a little bit of the, uh, of the, the Super Icky Bowl shuffle. shuffle. Uh, yeah, Icky Woods, uh, Boomer Esiason, obviously is another uh, someone yeah. I think that a lot of people kind of associate with the with, with the Bengals. He is obviously a front and center from a, from a public standpoint because of his, his broadcasting work. Um, yeah, it's a good question. The, the Rams or sorry, the Bengals, because they haven't been to the Super Bowl since the eighties. Uh, it's just, a there's just a long chunk there where there's not a lot. Corey Dillon is a name. I think for people of, of, of my age might associate with, with Bengals greatness, but it's not a team that's had a ton of success in the past 20 years. And as a result, there's a lot of younger football fans that I don't think have any, kind of slam dunk association with the team in any way. All right. Well, you and I will be in attendance for the commissioner's press conference. And uh, probably a couple of weeks ago, I'm not sure what Roger Goodell would have been asked about primarily <laughs> or really the, the tenor. He was probably feeling pretty good with viewership. You know, the TV ratings this year through the roof there. Maybe somebody would ask about the sale of some, some of their media assets. Maybe that would have been you or me. Um, but that was sort of the tone and tenor, right? I think uh, the commissioner is probably uh, awaiting and, he, and he's planning his response for questions about the Brian Flores lawsuit. Like this will dominate talk of Super Bowl week. At this end, I'm gonna, I'll give you the two pronged and then you can take it any way you want. Then, of course, we've got the Washington football team 
and, and you know the, the probe at, at Congress and maybe some allegations hitting right against the owner Dan Snyder. I mean, this is just like this is a one-two punch that Roger Goodell is gonna have to deal with all week. Yeah, I think you could have made an argument last week and maybe even right now as we record this on Monday that the the biggest the the, the three biggest stories in the NFL right now, none of them are the Super Bowl that that's going to take place in in 6 days. There's no question that the Brian Flores lawsuit which we covered with with Michael McCann in depth last week is going to continue to be a a hot topic. The Dolphins just hired uh, Mike McDaniel, who I think is now the third uh, non-white uh, head coach in in the NFL. Lovey Smith um, is in the running. Lovey Smith seems to be in the running for Texas for the Texans. But it doesn't um, solve the problem. I, I know it gives him a talking point, but it doesn't solve the institutional problem that Brian Flores was talking about. Hundred percent. And and again, this is going to be depending on the success that Brian has in luring other people to join this lawsuit. If, if he can get a, a number of coaches, front office executives would be or, or want to be executives, if he can turn this into a class action lawsuit, which I think is a long shot, but if he can, this becomes a massive, massive deal for the NFL. Uh, and even if he can't, I think you're right. This is going to be a principal topic of conversation uh, for Goodell uh, when he talks to the media Later this week, I know it is a conversation that's happening among owners right now. We saw, got a snippet of of, of the of the note that Roger Goodell sent around to owners. It seems very clear that that he is at least fairly frustrated with the way that this is going. I'm sure some owners feel the same way. Others maybe maybe not as much. Uh, but yes, in what is should be the biggest week of focusing on the game in 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 the NFL's calendar, it does seem like this is a big one. And then secondarily, and honestly, Scott, maybe even. More importantly, or, or, or more dramatically, the, the details that came out on Capitol Hill last week when, when the House Oversight and Reform Committee spoke with a number of uh, former Washington football team employees about the, the culture of sexual harassment that existed in that workplace. There, are, And I don't know how much of that you, you saw. You watched any of the highlights of the... Of, of the uh, well, you and I both agree on, on sort of the standout testimony, and it had to do with, well, how many times would you say? Oh, my that, gosh. That, yeah, yeah. I, know, I know both of that stood out for both of us. Yeah, watching those women talk about the, the hundreds, too much to count. I, I worked there 515 days, and it was 515 times because it was a daily occurrence. But there's uh, a big difference, Evan, and you know it. There's a big difference between sort of this culture of, as we've seen in not only NFL circles, but as we saw with like the Dallas Mavericks, for instance, but it was not directly tied to the owner. It was sort of a culture of that I did not oversee. We are, we are moving or seem to be moving in a direction that is not tangential to Dan Snyder, but that includes Dan Snyder as a participant in said behavior. That is problematic for Dan. That is problematic for the NFL. Yeah, I believe there were new allegations last week yes. specifically about Dan and his own behavior uh, from, from a former employer, uh, f- former employee. So, so yes, I think this is going to be another central theme here. There, there's a lot of discussion and disagreement a bit about the, the, the in, internal investigation that Beth Wilkinson commanded over in, in, in the workplace and which was, as you know, Scott, was was released just orally. There was no written report. Now the, 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 the House Oversight and Reform Committee seems to be saying that Roger Goodell was the one who, inf- who told her not to put it in a written report, that he would prefer it to happen just verbally as a report of it happening just orally. There's no, there's no findings to be released. A lot of people are upset about that. A lot of the women and former employees who were interviewed in it now want the, the details of, of what was, uh, what was reported to be uncovered. There, there's just so many folds here and, and the NFL kind of had to go through this when 
when the findings were released, when they when they find the team ten million dollars uh, about a half a year ago, now it seems as though there, there's kind of a new layer and a lot a bigger drumbeat, I would say, for for some of the details of what was what was uncovered in this investigation to be made public in some way. Yeah, the appetite for tolerance seems to be waning, especially when, as Mike McCann said, if you look at the Ray Rice investigation. Everything was on paper. Here's the report made public. This is the things we can do to fix it. When you looked at the deflate gate, it was like, what, 100 plus pages. I mean, Mike actually taught an entire course at uh, New Hampshire Law School because of this report, and it enabled people to see publicly what evidence there was. What we're hearing is troubling here is that the agreement during the prior to the investigation regarding the NFL and the Washington football team, now the Washington Commanders, is that there's seemingly sort of this unilateral ability for Dan Snyder, a, obviously a target, a participant of the investigation, to deem whether anything will be made public. Like the, when, you, when you ask for just sort of your common sense knee-jerk response to, whoa, 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 wait, wait a minute. It, it, how does he, who has obviously a vested interest in, in keeping this information private, have the ability to do so. So uh, there's just going to be a, a lot of questions aimed at Roger Goodell, the culture of football, the culture of hiring. And let me say that I, I do want to say that there is, at least when it comes to the minority hiring, it isn't the easiest thing in the world to do from an NFL perspective. The NFL cannot and will not tell a team, you must do X. You know, sort of the Rooney rule was a step in the right direction. Right? Let's look at int the intent versus the practicality or the, or the practical conclusions of what happened. Nice intent, right? But maybe just didn't, if true, if the allegations of Brian Ford, and that's a I, I capital letters emphasis, if, because there were a lot of allegations there. And we should say that Steve Ross has denied it. The New York Giants have, have denied it. Um, we, we should say like, it's not an easy, you cannot force the team to hire a particular coach. The question is, you know, how much longer, if you've got X percent of the workforce is black and why, why is it not funneling up to management coaches? And of course the be all end all ownership, like yeah. that, that is what, and, and that, that go, by the way, that goes across sports. Like even the NBA, which usually does very well in terms of minority coaches and executives, when you look at the ownership suite, you've got Michael Jordan. Yeah, I'll say two things here. One, on the, on the Rooney rule, I feel like regardless of what we learn definitively, factually about Brian Flores' allocations, it seems very clear to me that the Rooney rule has not worked. And I do not think there is any harm if the NFL comes out and says, look, 20 years ago, we tried this thing. We thought it was going to help. Did we, have, we have infinite evidence that it did not help, and as a result, we're going to scrap it and, and what, see if what there's are some of the best. Yeah, what do some of the best business leaders say? Right, yep. the, the worst reason to do something is the way it's always been done. That's the worst exactly. excuse you can have. And there's no harm in saying we tried, we tried, we tried. It failed. We will now rethink. We will try something new. I think even the biggest uh, the, the biggest advocates for repealing the Rooney Rule would say that there's probably some some goodness at heart, right? It was a it was an attempt to solve a problem. It, it seems very clearly it hasn't worked. The second thing I'll say is is on the topic of of obviously the league cannot force teams to 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 do better at at, at diversity and hiring uh, every year. 
the uh, University of Central Florida and Richard Lapchick put out these numbers of how well each individual league does in terms the of hiring, report. gender, racial, etc. The NFL uh, does not do very well on the whole in terms of all of its teams, et cetera. One aspect of the NFL that does really well is the NFL League Central Office Central here, office, here yeah. in New York. Uh, so, so for all the criticism that gets heaped onto Roger Goodell, that will get heaped onto Roger Goodell in, in the next weeks or two. In the in positions the he can here. actually control, he does, or at least 100%, his, his yeah. entity does very well. The, the grading for the, the League Central Office, the people that Roger Goodell oversees the hiring process for, does very well. I always find that to be very telling because it's obviously Roger's job to be kind of the shield, to protect the shield, to be the one who takes the flack uh, when issues like this come up that are league-wide. The truth is that it seems very clear that there are a lot of owners that are not pulling their part on this. Roger Goodell, in the areas where he has direct control, actually does seem to be pulling his part quite well. All right. Colin Jost and Scarlett Johansson, right before we started this podcast, Edmund, I'm fiddling around on the old Google, and the Alexa Super Bowl ad pops up. I'm like, all right, you know, I'm game. I'll do it. I'll fall for this. Click, and I watch... It's an entertaining ad. It's I, I don't know exactly how long it is. It's longer than 30 seconds. I'm assuming it was 60. You know, it's like one of these tells a story and go, I watched it. I'm like, all right, I got it. Good ad. I, okay, Alexa, fine. I don't know if I want to see it again. So you and I have always debated sort of the existence of the, the new reality of Super Bowl ads is to make sure the world sees them prior to the Super Bowl. Whereas when I was growing up in the 1800s, like that was the big deal to watch the game and see the ads. And then you kind of had to remember which was your favorite. Now, of course, there's a million ad tracking, uh, ad trackers and, and metrics to say which was the best, who, who the immediate polling, which one uh, actually cut through and did its job. But I, I'm, still, I'm still fascinated by the mechanisms and the approach and the industry of Super Bowl ads. Yeah, I, I'm totally with you. I, I remember the first time, I think it was like five or six years ago when I was watching the game and, and an ad popped up and someone sitting next to me was like, oh, this is a good one. Make sure you watch this. And I was like, what do you mean this is a good how one? Do you how, know? how do you know that? <laughs> yes, I, I, in my opinion, and it sounds like you and I are aligned here, The one of the kind of cool allures of the Super Bowl ads and, and, and enjoy how enjoyable they were is that you had no idea what they were going to be. There was a bit of suspense for every single one. Is this going to be a good one? Is this going to be a bad one? And talking about it, the idea that we now are going to know, and it's been true for a few years, the fact that we're going to know ahead of time kind of what all these ads are really does seem like it defeats the purpose. Uh, but clearly we're wrong on this, right? Yes, totally. Yeah. So, so I guess maybe they look at the kind of the earned uh, impressions of the ad in, in the week leading up to it. And then, you know, tack that onto the, the hundred roughly hundred million people that are going to be watching this on TV in the U S and, and they see some advantage there, but yes, it does feel like it is, a, it is a fundamental shift in the way that these, the, the, these, these ads are released to the public. And clearly we're missing something about the economics of it. Yeah. We got to get core development involved here. And I, you know, I say her name at the end, she's our social media editor because so much these days is involved in impressions, right? And the conversation on social must surely drive a lot of what is happening now. It can't just be the people who saw it. It's how do you get the buzz before? What is the tail end of it after? How long does it does it stay in the public consciousness? What are the impressions? How many people see it? All the retweets. Um, yeah, it's, it's, a, it's an interesting dynamic that has changed and, and the approach has changed. Maybe one of these days, let, maybe we'll, you know, we'll call up Whedon and Kennedy, one of these folks. Let's, let's get somebody on to really talk about like the business of the advertising. I world would love to and, have and that how it works. Yeah, we, we should do because obviously you and I are lay people and we're watching, you know, as obviously I would say more sophisticated sports business folks, but still for some reason yearning for yesteryear. 
and thinking like that's still a very good way to do it? Or can you cut through by doing it that way again? And while social media is, is undoubtedly so much more important than it ever has been, the price of these ads is is going up way faster than the price of inflation, right? The, the, yeah. There's there's no question. Well, that maybe, not, seven, maybe not this year. <laughs> maybe not this year. But at, at $7 million for, for a 30-second spot, which some people are paying for the, 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 the broadcast on NBC this year, that there is still obviously a tremendous amount of value placed on on being able to show it during the game, even though, as we're saying, a lot of the kind of accrued benefit of having a Super Bowl ad actually happens not when the ad airs itself, but on social media and on the internet in the days leading up to the games, which theoretically any advertiser should be able to have some kind of some kind of attempt at, at at doing some kind of shoulder, you know, Super Bowl NFL championship game advertising on. It, it's interesting to me that that while the game itself, the advertising seems to be less and less important, it's also becoming extremely expensive at maybe even a faster clip than it was 10 years ago. All right, NBC's got the double-double. They've got the Super Bowl, of course, but also the Olympics. Let's not take up too much time, but the opening ceremony numbers for the Olympics, not that great. Of course, you've got the time change in Beijing, so you're you're sort of you know you're you're completely on the other side of live you know versus uh, prime time. Um, I don't I don't know what's your interest on the Olympics these days. Like I see the snippets on on media, like Michaela Schiffman, she flames out in, in her first event. Do you want to watch that? You've got you've got the uh, USA women hockey playing against the Canadian. That's obviously a, a marquee event but i'm guessing they'll probably play each other again in the finals so do do i need to watch it now i just i just don't get the sense that the at least the big american names are drawing the eyeballs right now Th- that's right and, and i am i i love the olympics and i would probably love the olympics if there was not a name that i that i knew i just like the i i like the the watching and caring about sports and storylines that i don't think about for i don't even think for, the beauty for, shots for four are years. That, what about, i mean just a basic part of winter olympics are the beauty shots right I'm There's not even seeing that right now. Did you see the ski jumping? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Exactly. <laughs> that's, a, that's an amazing, amazing venue and an amazing photograph to, to kind of show where the Olympics are physically and also uh, metaphorically r- right now. Uh, I, I spent some time this this weekend with my sister, with my parents. Uh, none of them are are big sports fans. There's there's very few sporting events. I wouldn't be shocked if my parents don't even watch the Super Bowl. Everybody was actually really excited for the Olympics. So there's obviously some kind of interest among a certain subset of Americans in kind of the every four years getting into sports like skiing and sports like figure skating, etc. But I think on the grand scheme, the fact that there are not a lot of American star stars right now is really going to hurt the the TV property. It's going to hurt NBC. It's going to hurt, I think, the buzz of the Olympics overall. Sean White said this is his last games. He is a draw of some sort. Michaela Schifrin, you mentioned she has other events coming up. She lasted two seconds, maybe three seconds in, into the grand slalom out of the before, gate, yeah. before crashing. And, and that was it. Um, the NB, NBC is so reliant, I think, on, on just a few people here to do really well. Some of them we know are going to do really well. The U S women's hockey team is going to play for the gold medal against Canada. That seems like a, a slam dunk, uh, mortal lock, but you know, you're just one or two slips from one of the greatest skiers in the world. And in, in, in the first two gates of her run from, from losing a, a kind of a staple piece of programming on, on that night, which is what happened to NBC on, uh, on Sunday night. Maybe they get a boost out of Nathan Shen in figure skating, right? Yeah. Maybe you get a boost there. 
Possibly. Yeah. And, and again, I think there's for the people that just love the Olympics like myself and don't need the like big American stars. Yeah. Those people are always going to be watching these things, but for the vast majority of people who need to have that, that draw on a certain night, uh, it, 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 it seems like the cupboard's actually fairly bare right now for, for team USA. All right. We cannot ignore our friend, Kathy Engelbert commissioner over at the WNBA not sure. I mean, we did it and, and it got attention, but I'm not sure people really downloaded what it meant that the WNBA took in a $75 million investment among them, Lorraine Powell Jobs, Nike, um, Condoleezza Rice. Among the, I mean, there was a slew of who's who of sports, entertainment, business, investors. But the important piece of this puzzle, and I'm glad that we were una- we were able to unearth it first, is anytime there's an investment made, company, whatever, there's two things we want to know, right? How much? And then the important piece is what at what valuation? That that kind of shows you where people think these properties are are headed. And there's not a direct, it doesn't mean that's what something is worth. Like I, I saw you put out on Twitter. No, 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 that's not how this works. I mean, look at public companies too. You know, or you, you can invest at a, at a certain valuation. It doesn't mean it's worth that right now. But uh, the WNBA, uh, at least on paper, uh, in, with these investors, uh, has a valuation of $1 billion. And at a time when we're seeing uh, the investment in the Women's Hockey League, you're seeing the NWSL team in Washington perhaps being sold at, at $35 million. You're seeing this, this slow and steady drumbeat. We've had uh, John Patrick off on um, with Athletes Unlimited. This slow and steady drumbeat that people are starting to really recognize the value and the ROI of women's sports. Yeah, the it, it feels a lot like the conversation around women's sports right now is is kind of like the conversation around Major League Soccer right now in that there are valuations that maybe if you looked at the the PL sheet of, of of the team or the league you would say, "Oh, this actually doesn't seem like that healthy a company right now," but People are investing under the belief that in the future, uh, there's going to be a significant amount of growth and they want to get in right now. We, we heard John Boynton uh, talking about that in women's hockey last week on the show as well. Um, so, so yeah, the, the what I mentioned on Twitter, there's got so many people and, and a lot of these are just haters of women's sports, I think, looking saying, oh, the, the WME doesn't make any money. It's not profitable. How is it worth a billion dollars? Well, yeah, the truth is that DraftKings doesn't make any money either. It's worth $8 billion. There, there's profitability is, is, one of, is not a good indication necessarily of how much something is worth. Um, but it definitely does seem true that this is a gaudy valuation for the WNBA and, and it is predicated on the belief that Ted Leonsis and Mickey Harrison and Michael Dell and Nike and Lorraine Powell Jobs, all these people really believe that there is there, there is significant growth to be had in the near-term future and they're willing to invest a pretty good chunk in it right now. Uh, if you just look at the economics here, they raised $75 million at a $1 billion valuation. And the $75 million was from, I, th- I think the total number of people here is, is over 30. So if, if you just average that out, each of these people is getting less than half of 1%. And, and, and you, know though you know it wasn't equal. You know there exactly. are probably two yeah. or three so or four that are on There's on some the people that end. are probably yeah. taking a lot. Some people that are taking less than one half of 1%. Yes. Yes. When you're investing in something at, at one half of 1%, the valuation uh, is, is extremely fungible, right? E- 
even if you're buying, yeah, say you say you're buying a half of 1%, the difference between a $300 million and a $600 million valuation is, is less than a half a percent of your equity stake, right? So there's a very easy way if you're at, at this level, and we see this in Major League Soccer a lot also, where a celebrity will say, look, I have $5 million I want to buy into this team. Do I care if that is a quarter of a percent or a half a percent? No, but again, that's the difference between a valuation that is X or 2X. Uh, so again, I think when you're looking at numbers this small, you obviously have to take the, the valuation with a grain of salt as well. But this is a great number for the NBA, which owns about half of the WNBA. It's a great number for WNBA owners who own the other half of the WNBA. And I think it's a really good kind of early litmus test for, for what you're saying, Scott, which is that there's this belief that investing right now in women's sports is a really good way to make a lot of money in, in, in the longer term future. This might be one of our longer pods. And maybe it's because, you know, I, I named some of the investors and you felt the need to show me up and put a few more in there. <laughs> like when you're adding information, fine. How about Joe and Clara Sai? All right. How about ah. that? I'll, I'll, I'll want up you there. Anyway, he is, Davis here. <laughs> uh, yeah, we'll just keep going back and have a two hour podcast. He is Evan Novi Williams on the Twitter, Novi underscore Williams. I am Scott Soshnick on the Twitter at Soshnick. Our social media editor is Cora Veltman. And by the way, producer Matt Whitehurst, thank you very much, Matt. Cora loves it when I remind you that the show can be found at Sportacast, which is the hub of what will soon become the Sportico Media Network. 